We'll hear argument first this morning in case 21-1086, Merrill versus Milligan and the consolidated case. Mr. Lucor. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Alabama conducted its 2021 redistricting in a lawful, race-neutral manner. The state largely retained its existing districts and made changes needed to equalize population. But that wasn't good enough for the plaintiffs. They argued that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act requires Alabama to replace its map with a racially gerrymandered plan maximizing the number of majority-minority districts. But Section 2 requires an electoral process equally open to all, not one that guarantees maximum political success for some over others. Section 2 does not and cannot obligate Alabama to abandon district lines enveloping the undisputed, long-standing community of interest in the Gulf to be replaced by district lines dividing black and white with such racial precision that Alabama could never have constitutionally drawn those lines in the first place. Yet that is what Alabama has been commanded to do here, redraw its districts to subordinate traditional districting principles to race. The only way to add a second majority-minority district to Alabama's plan is to make race the non-negotiable criterion. Plaintiffs' illustrative plans prove the point. They offer only one way to get that second majority black district split Mobile County and divide the Gulf by race. Their new versions of Districts 1 and 2 then stretch the width of the state to group together black voters from disparate areas as far west as Mobile and as far east as the Georgia border. The District Court relied on these outlier plans to invalidate the state's neutrally drawn map, and that was legal error. Requiring states to scrap neutral plans in favor of plans drawn on account of race sets Section 2 at war with itself and with the Constitution. The Court should make clear that if a state's plan is the product of the state's neutral districting principles, the plan is equally open to all voters. Because Alabama's 2021 plan is such a plan, plaintiffs' claims fail. I welcome the Court's questions. Uh, What would you use as a comparator? I I assume that your problem is that the comparator here was – uh, had race as a non as non negotiable. What would you use as a comparator? If even if you uh, thought that there might be some vote uh, dilution problems with your plan, the the plan that would be the adequate comparator would be one that respects all of our traditional districting principles as much as our own map, um, but then has some different sort of racial outcome. Um, similar to what the court has proposed in Cromartie 2, for example. That that sort of map can actually show that there's a problem with our map. But if you are discriminating in favor of one racial group, then that map cannot show that our map was discriminating against that group. It's a flawed control. Well, don't you think there's an overall problem with, uh, in these uh, dilution cases, of determining uh, uh, at the beginning what the comparator should be? Yes, Your Honor. I think, as this Court noted, both in the Holder v. Hall plurality and in Brnovich, benchmarks are critical in any Section 2 case. Um, And we've proposed a benchmark to the Court. Uh, Plaintiffs have not proposed any benchmark other than perhaps maximization or proportionality. But, of course, Section 2 rejects a proportionality baseline, and this Court has wisely rejected maximization and proportionality because they lead to constitutional problems. Do you agree that the benchmark you propose has never been recognized by this Court as the benchmark that's appropriate in these kinds of cases? I I don't think so, Justice Kagan. First, I mean, going back to Jingles, uh, I think the benchmark there, even for multi-member districts, was neutrally drawn single-member districts, not racially gerrymandered, 
single-member districts. And when you continue — Of course, you're requiring that there be that kind of benchmark. The question is not whether it's permissible. You are requiring that there be a race-neutral benchmark. And I'm asking whether that requirement has ever been stated in our precedents. I think that's what Bush v. Vera, what Abrams, and what LULAC were all pushing towards when they said you must account for traditional disagreeing principles. I don't know why you would even account for them, except that if a plaintiff's failure to account for them in their map, um, if, if plaintiffs fail to account for them in their map, then their map can't really shed any light Counsel. on I guess I ask because what strikes me about this case is that under our precedent, it's kind of a slam dunk. If you just take our existing precedent the way it is, and the three judges below all found this. The three judges below said this is an easy case. It's not one of the hard ones. It's not one of the boundary line cases. It was clear that the plaintiff satisfied the jingles preconditions. Um, uh, it's in, in, in past that, you know, you're looking at a state where there are 27% of the population is African American, but only one of seven districts, where there is incredible racially polarized voting where there is a long history of racial discrimination in the state, put all that together, and it seems clear that under our existing precedents, the inquiry is complete in just the way that, this, that, the, that the court below found. And, uh, you know, it seems to me that you're coming here, and it's totally your right to do it, but really saying change the way we look at Section 2 and its application. Uh, absolutely not, Your Honor. And I, respectfully, I, I thought this was the — this is such an edge case. This is a case where the plaintiffs have come forward with an expert who said it's hard to draw a second-majority minority district by accident. It's a case where the named plaintiff, Evan Milligan himself, showed that it's hard to do it on purpose. He runs an Alabama-focused redistricting nonprofit. He had a team of trained map drawers try to draw a second-majority black district in Alabama — and they couldn't do it. That's at page 511 of the Joint Appendix. So I'm sorry. Can I just uh, help? I, I don't understand. Are you saying that um, the jingles preconditions as we ordinarily understand them were not satisfied in this case? Yes, Your Honor. I mean, the, Lulac how says so? how so? Lulac says quite clearly, account for traditional discriminating principles such as maintaining communities of interest and traditional boundaries. There's an undisputed traditional, uh, rather an undisputed community of interest in the Gulf. The district court found that the Gulf community is a community of interest, and it's not maintained. Uh, So I think it's open and shut. No, I'm sorry. So you're saying step one was not satisfied in this case because the ordinary redistricting principles — I thought this was about a race-blind algorithm, so now I'm confused. So what what is the problem? And let me just — let me tell you why I think that matters. Um, because much like what Justice Kagan was suggesting, we have to figure out whether you are claiming that we need to change jingles in some fundamental way or whether you're just saying that these plaintiffs didn't satisfy jingles in the way that we normally understand it. I thought you were saying jingles step one needs to be retooled to require some showing of a comparison with a race neutral or, excuse me, a race-blind algorithm. And so then my question was, okay, well, you would bear the burden, I think, of showing that there's a problem with the way that we're doing it now, that the way that Jingles is working, 
and that a race-blind algorithm actually produces a better result insofar as it's uh, better implementing what Congress intended or it is required by the Constitution. All of those are pretty heavy burdens, I think, um, in this situation. So are you asking us to reconsider what is happening with jingles to require that challengers compare their original map at step one with a race-blind algorithm? The, the algorithms are not essential. They're, they're very helpful and illuminating in this case because the Milligan plaintiffs brought them themselves. What did they illuminate? They show that this is what you would expect a race-neutral map drawer to produce. Why and does that matter? I thought Congress's statute said we don't care about intent. So the race-neutral nature of this goes to whether or not Alabama intended the result. And I take your point that, no, you didn't. So what difference does it make what a race-neutral algorithm would do? It matters for at least three reasons, Your Honor. I mean, this court, I mean, every time that a Section 2 case has come before this court um, and you've had to consider that interaction between Section 2 and the Equal Protection Clause, you reverse for someone using too much race and trying to — Do you think that Section 2 sets out an intense standard? Your Honor, I I think that — it's undisputed that intent is relevant. Intent has not been rendered Sure. Uh, You know, nobody disputes that intent isn't relevant. The question is, is intent required? And when I read your brief, uh, all over it, you suggest that intent is required. And I thought that we have said on numerous occasions that intent is not required. And the reason we've said it on numerous occasions is because that's what Congress said. We once uh, long ago said that intent was required in in the voting section two of the Voting Rights Act. And Congress immediately slapped us down and said, no, we didn't mean that, and made clear in the language of the statute that it was um, incorporating a results test, an effects test. And yet your, um, quest, your, your arguments, as Justice Jackson has suggested, really say that that's wrong and that uh, there needs to be a showing of intent in order to make out a Section 2 violation. Two points on that. I, I will recognize there, there's certainly dicta in the court, Section 2 precedent, suggesting that there doesn't have to be a showing of intent. What we have laid out in the brief is what we think the best reading of the text, which when the court, when Congress decided to put in 2B that language from Whitcomb and from White v. Register, they were importing an invidious discrimination. I, I mean, test. to make this a question of dicta in the cases, when you have Congress saying results in, and then setting out an entire subsection about what it means to result in uh, unequal um, uh, access to the political process. And then Jingle says, well, we acknowledge that this was uh, a response to Bolden, where we held that proof of discriminatory intent was required. And we say Congress revised Section 2 to make clear that a violation could be proved by showing discriminatory effect alone. And then we said it in Chisholm. And then we said it recently as a year ago. I dissented from this decision, but uh, Brnovich says uh, the fact that Section 2 does not demand proof of discriminatory purpose is one of the points of law that nobody disputes. Correct. 
And, Your Honor, our position we've laid out, and the Court obviously does not have to reach that in this case, because we do think that the plaintiffs have brought such an edge case here that this should be easy to resolve on narrower grounds. But they imported from WIT and from White v. Register um, what, the Senate fact, what the Senate report referred to as the White results test. Well, if you look back at White and if you look back at Whitcomb, they say invidious discrimination half a dozen times. Justice White explained in his dissent in Mobile that they were requiring — that the plurality was requiring some sort of smoking gun proof of identifying the exact official. And Justice White's position was no. Circumstantial evidence could be enough to infer invidious discrimination, and that's exactly what's going on in Rogers v. Lodge. Do you agree with the Solicitor General's um, statement in uh, the government, the federal government's brief, that they, you can take into account the factors that you're most concerned about, which is the computer simulations uh, that show the effects of uh, uh, race-neutral criteria, that you can take those into account under the totality of the circumstances uh, point, but they do not show any uh, — do not undermine uh, uh, the proposition that there's no requirement of showing intent? I think you could certainly take them into account at the totality circumstances stage. Um, if you look at the district court's opinion here, though, I mean, and one other thing I'd note, in Brnovich, I mean, this court emphasized that the legitimate state goals are critical at that totality of the circumstances stage. And I think in a single-member district contest — context, it's especially important that the Court be putting those legitimate goals front and center for at least two reasons. First, as this Court has said, in every redistricting opinion that you've issued, redistricting is one of the most difficult and complex things that a legislature has to undertake, and it's an area where courts are not particularly well suited to come in and second-guess. But second, and even more importantly, single-member districting is uniquely zero-sum. So if someone brings a challenge to an early voting period and says, it's 10 days, but it really should be 20 and they prevail and get 10 more days, no one is harmed on account of race. The minority voters who prevailed and the majority voters can both take advantage of that. Um, similarly, if you challenge multi-member districts and you replace them with neutral single-member districts, no one's worse off on account of race. But if you have a neutral plan and someone comes in and upsets it to racially gerrymandered in favor of one racial group, well, necessarily you're going to be harming some other group on account of race. But why are you saying council. it's a neutral plan, Council? I, I don't understand. The jingles preconditions are designed to establish that there may actually be race discrimination working in this particular situation, right? We have, as Justice Kagan pointed out, not just the initial hypothesis, which, by the way, is how I look at the first step. I don't think the first step is, you know, creating some sort of a uh, comparator or anything of the sort. The first step is a burden on the plaintiff on the challenger to show that their hypothesis that another district could be drawn, another minority, uh, majority minority district, is even feasible given the empirical numbers in the situation. All right? So if we accept that, that's step number one, and it contains an assessment of things like racial segregation in housing, because you have to have enough of these people pushed in, compacted in this district, right? Mm -hmm. So we already have this idea that there's some problem because we have racial segregation in housing at step one. Then step two is asking, do we have a problem in the sense that people are voting in racially polarized ways? Step three is also that kind of dynamic. Do we have a situation in which the, you know, majority group is always voting in the same way? 
These are really tough things to establish. And collectively, they show that it's not neutral, the situation that we are approaching in this situation. We're talking about a situation in which race has already infused the voting system. So can you help me understand why you think that the world of, you know, race-blind redistricting is, is really the starting point in this situation? Well, let's think about why you have a compactness inquiry in the first place. It's to make sure that no one's being harmed on account of a lack of compactness. And that's why traditional districting principles are part of this inquiry, too. So no one's being harmed. I don't think so. I think it's to show that you have racial segregation in housing happening in this situation, that you have enough people who are in, uh, you know, marginalized groups that another district is possible. And why is that happening? Because people are being segregated in effect, in effect, as Judge uh, Justice Kagan pointed out, right? We're not talking about intent. We're talking about the effect of what's happening on the ground in these jurisdictions. Two points. First, on the segregation point, if, if there really was that compact, segregated part of Alabama to draw that second black district, they wouldn't have had to have split Mobile for the first time ever, gone 170 miles northeast up to Montgomery, and then dipped 100 miles to the southeast to Dothan, Alabama. Okay, so uh, Council, you have a um, — just, Justice Alito. Uh, Council, you have made a number of arguments. Some of them are quite far-reaching, and you've been questioned about some of those already in the argument today. But let me make sure I understand your your basic argument, uh, your least far-reaching argument. And as I understood it, the argument is that the first Gingles precondition requires the showing that there can be a reasonably configured majority-minority district. It's not just any old majority-minority district. It has to be reasonably configured. And reasonably configured means something more than just compact. It means a district that is the type of district that would be drawn by an unbiased mapmaker. Now, a plaintiff in a case like this can attempt to satisfy that first condition simply by coming forward with a district that is majority-minority. But uh, that doesn't end the inquiry, because if it can be shown, as you claim the computer simulations in this case show that that is not the kind of district that an unbiased mapmaker would ever draw, then the first Gingles precondition is not satisfied. Now, that's how I understood your your basic argument. Am I right on that? Yes. Yes, Your Honor. But you could also consider that at the totality of circumstances. And you could consider it at the totality of the circumstances. Mm -hmm. But your most basic argument is not at war with Gingles. You have quarrels with Gingles, but your most basic argument fits right into Gingles. Absolutely. I mean, in LULAC, the Court recognized the compactness inquiry uh, lacked some precision. Um, well, Mr. Obviously, Mr. it only fits with Gingles if Gingles meant reasonably configured in the way that Justice Alito suggests. Mm -hmm. But there's no indication in Gingles or in any of our cases that the Court did mean reasonably configured in the way that Justice Alito suggests. Reasonably configured meant, take a look at a district. Does the district have sort of reasonable lines, or are you doing something totally crazy? Does the district, you know, uh, incorporate communities of interest? Does it, you know, does it make sure that traditional districting criteria are satisfied? If you can come in with a map that looks like that, 
which plaintiffs here did. Nobody contests that even. Or maybe you do. I don't know. Um, uh, uh, certainly the judges below found that question very easy. Then you go on. This is just a precondition to show that you have a map that accords with traditional districting criteria. They had that map. With, with respect, uh, first, again, I'm not sure why the Court has ever spoken about traditional districting principles and reasonable configuration, um, or at least the Court has never suggested that a map that the State could never enact itself under the Equal Protection Clause is somehow reasonably configured. If they came forward with a Cooper v. Harris map or the Bethune Hill map, But why is that the question at Step 1, Counsel? Why is that the question? At Step 1, we're not even worried about the State's map. We're asking the, the, the challengers. It's a burden on the challengers. Can you sustain your hypothesis that under traditional redistricting principles, we can have a map that is drawn the way we ordinarily draw maps and in, has a majority uh, of, of minorities. It's not about the state's map at one. So I don't understand why we would have to ensure that the challenger's map conforms with other legal requirements. With respect, th- this whole case is about the state's map. The whole Section 2 inquiry should be about the state's map. And there's something bizarre with the fact that, like, we have to somehow show that there's something so wrong with their maps no, that our counsel, map gets it's to like, stand. It's like, it's like the burden-shifting tests that this Court has in all kinds of other discrimination. It's like McDonnell Douglas, right? At step one, the challengers have to do something. Mm-hmm. And it, in this case, they have to do something really hard. They have three different hurdles that they have to jump over in order to even get us to question the Alabama's uh, 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 maps. And at step one, they have to show this empirical thing. And I don't understand why you are now suggesting that the step one has to also relate to the legality of that map. That's not the ultimate map that it's going to be, right? Even if they win, Alabama has the opportunity to put out its own map. So they're just doing a particular thing at step one. And I don't understand your your argument. With with respect, Your Honor, this Court has said, account for traditional districting principles, and if they get to leave a few of those aside, then that hurdle becomes very low. And, and maps that Evan Milligan himself couldn't have conceived of somehow clear that hurdle. Counsel, and then the state and the state, sorry, Justice Sotomayor. Finish answering, but then come to me. Uh, and in effect, in this case, um, and in multiple circuits, lower courts are treating Jingles 1, 2, and 3 as the whole ball game. So if you're going to leave Jingles 1 as this very easy-to-satisfy precondition, well, then all the more important for you to consider the state's legitimate purposes Count- counsel, at the totality stage. Now may I get to that? Yes. All right. Um, first of all, I follow the district court's findings, the three judges' extensive record. They found that the uh, respondent's map or the respondent's map respected traditional districting better than the state's map in medium compactness, continuity, respect for political subdivisions, and the desire to keep together existing communities of interest. You dispute that, but we can go into the record. There is a fight here, however, over what's a continuing existing community of interest. You sit, or you've been arguing, 
that Mobile and what's the other county? Uh, Mobile and Baldwin counties. Baldwin, that they're a community of interest. Why? They have a, I think it's French and Spanish background. Just so happens that all of those people are white. And you've never split those communities. The black belt uh, has all black people, or not all, but mostly black people. 56.6%. So, 56. Yeah, Mobile and Baldwin have a majority white. That black community, through the decades, has been split three or four ways. Now the question is why? What the district court did was to look at that community and say, it may be black, but that's irrelevant to what constitutes a community of interest. It's not merely its race. It's its socioeconomic background, its educational level, its occupation. It's all of the things that one would look at to define a community of interest. And that community of interest should be held together. Because just like Mobile and uh, Baldwin, assuming, and the district court didn't held that you hadn't met your burden on that actually being a community of interest. But even if you wanted to keep it that way, my question to you is, assume I accept that as a community of interest. Why isn't the maps that the district court relying on race neutral? So, uh, it's looking at community of interest. If you, and I think what the district court said was that historically it, the maps you've drawn in the past had discrimination sort of built in. Uh, just somewhere. There's a lot to unpack. There are a few premises I think I need to clear up as a factual matter, and then I'd be happy to get to the legal point. First, the district court did find at page 180 of the Milligan Stay Appendix that there is a Gulf Coast community of interest. They found Representative Bradley Burns' testimony to be helpful. That's at page 122. Uh, so there's no dispute there that there is a community of interest, nor, nor could there be. Um, second. I, I think there was a difference of opinion about that, but I, I we, think, can, we can go. I think we have, two, assuming it. we have two undisputed communities of interest. We've got the right. Gulf, we've got the Black Belt. Um, second, So why can you not, why can you put precedence on keeping one together, but not keeping the other together? So, breaking it up by three or four. Uh, two responses to that. One is, I don't think courts are very well positioned to judge how which community of interest should be weighed in which way well, in a particular if, map. If, but second if, if the respondents maps are better at compactness, continuity, respect for political subdivision, why are they worse than what the state has done or well, suspect? They, they are not better. Their districts one and two are far less compact, and Dr. Dugin testified that the reason that for one that— One or two might be, but there's always going to be something that's a little less. On medium, they said it was more compact. Well, on average, and that's because they completely restructured the north of the state, districts five and four, which are not at issue at all here, to build up a compactness budget that could then be spent at the bottom of the state, which— that, That's not what the district court found. I mean, but putting this aside, let's go back to my fundamental question. I thought the issue under Section 2 was whether or not a particular 
racial minority has an re as a result has can equally participate if that's the case and on all the factors the district court looked at it concluded that the black belt community which is a community of interest was inappropriately cracked your Honor, in three or four districts, why isn't that actionable under Section 2? Your Honor, there is no finding. It shows up a lot in my friend's briefs, but there is no finding that we cracked the black belt. Absolutely not a finding that we cracked the black belt. Well, how can it not be if you're not keeping together a community of interest the way you did because with Mobile and Baldwin? Your Honor, the, the black belt, as both plaintiffs and their experts testified, stretches from Texas to Virginia. We can't keep the whole black belt Together and those. You already have one long district in your plan. Yes, and as Bill Cooper, the plaintiffs' expert, the Castor plaintiffs' expert, explained, that's because the Tennessee River runs east to west up there. It is always black belt runs east to west as well. Correct, but the rivers in the southwest of the state, the Tom Bigby, the Alabama, and the Mobile, they run north to south, and they drop off in the port. And that's why Shalila Dowdy, one of the Milligan plaintiffs, testified that when Mobile's doing well, then. Everyone, regardless of race, in the Mobile area and even in the Black Belt counties directly north of there, is doing well. So they're they're proving our case for us. Are there enough people in the Black Belt to constitute a district by itself? Or was it it necessary in their proposed District 7 to reach up into into Montgomery and uh, pick up uh, black areas there in order to get over the 50 percent mark? Yes, that's why it goes up into Jefferson County. As I mentioned, the 18 core black belt counties are only 56.6% black, only 566,000 people. So it's very difficult to draw a district. Plus, because it spans the state, you can't draw one district that puts them all in there together. Otherwise, you're going to strand too many people south of there, and you can't have contiguous districts. And on this point of who does better or not in the black belt, the district court did not find that their plans do better on the black belt. They said they do at least as well. It would have been clearly erroneous to find that they do better because our plan puts those 18 core counties into three districts. Every one of their plans puts them into at least three districts, with the exceptions of why don't we wait till we get get back, uh, Council? You've you've been asked a lot of questions on uh, the nature of your sum- submission. I'm not I'm sure you've had a full opportunity to respond. Um, what exactly is your submission under Section Two uh, uh, that, uh, uh, in, in particular, the relation between uh, uh, the uh, computer analysis that you've submitted and why uh, your argument is not an effort to resuscitate the intent test that Congress has rejected under Section 2? Well, Your Honor, we think that, as I mentioned before, intent is not irrelevant. Even the Milligan plaintiffs agree at page um, — I don't have the page right in front of me um, — page 20 in their brief that Section 2 requires evidence relevant to the issue of intentional discrimination. Well, we've got phenomenal evidence that, that they brought forward. Um, and, and this is another fact I need to clear up because the United States and both sets of plaintiffs got it wrong in their briefs. Um, but Dr. Amai, he was, their, he was the Milligan plaintiffs expert who was working with the 2020 data. And he drew 10,000, three sets of 10,000 maps. Um, the third set guaranteed one majority black district of 50 to 51 percent, razor thin, leaving as many black voters as possible to find in the other six districts and form a second majority minority district. Then contiguity, equal population, keep counties together, stay relatively compact, don't pair incumbents. And then 
prioritized communities of interest. And they've said again and again that he didn't take into account communities of interest. That is flatly wrong. He did. And so what he was told to do by the Milligan plaintiffs was to prioritize putting the Gulf counties together and prioritize putting the 23 black belt counties together. When he did that, he had one majority black district that was pre-programmed. And then the second highest BVAP district averaged about 36 percent. But I guess to get to the basic point, uh, in what way do your simulations, which um, uh, you required to be race neutral, um, uh, why does that seem to require an intent test? In other words, you seem to say what was wrong with the other simulations is that they took race uh, uh, into account. Uh, and the state rejected that to look for the, the neutral plans. That sounds to me like something that's looking for intent. You say there was no intent because every time we ran the simulation without taking race into account, this is what it came up with. And my understanding uh, uh, of um, uh, our, our cases is that you don't have to show intent. So what is the significance of your computer simulations? Well, a, f- a few points, Your Honor. I mean, if you inject race as a traditional discriminating principle, which is what both plaintiffs mapped our said they did, they treated race as a traditional discriminating principle, it's going to have that hydraulic effect. It's going to make it harder to comport with traditional discriminating principles, and you're going to end up with a map that's not going to do as well. Also, I mean, again, intent is not irrelevant. If we've shown conclusively that we're achieving our legitimate goals, that has to factor in. I think even the dissent in Brnovich said a Section 2 plaintiff needs to show that it's not possible for the state to achieve its legitimate goals in some way. And and we've shown that. It is impossible for us to achieve undisputably legitimate goals of keeping the Gulf together, of maintaining our pre-existing district lines in a large amount, um, and keeping relatively compact districts that someone could look at from Alabama and recognize why they were drawn that way without looking and seeing the price. Thank you, Council. Thank you, Council. Justice Thomas, it's your turn. Justice Alito? Mm -hmm. Justice Sotomayor? I find it interesting that you're touting uh, Dr. Amey's studies when below you vehemently objected to his studies on the basis that uh, the studies were incomplete and didn't take into account all of Alabama's guidelines. Yes, Your Honor, uh, and that's a very easy answer to give. We took into account the pre-existing district lines as traditional boundaries, so to speak. He did not, and so his map couldn't reveal well, whether race the, was driving that things. But, question. but plaintiffs, none of their map drawers cared at all about pre-existing district lines. So they took into, he took into account the same things they were taking into account. And when he did, without also putting race into account, that's the one thing he didn't take into account, then you come back with maps that come nowhere close to creating a second majority black district, which shows that race was the criterion that could not be compromised. I mean, it's textbook predominance. Uh, We could have never drawn those maps constitutionally. Uh, And again, just to get back to the general confusion here, it puts us in an obvious rock and a hard place. They're using maps we could have never drawn to force us to draw maps that, like, again, we couldn't have ever drawn. Um, So... That cannot be how the equal openness mandate of Section 2 works. It needs to work in harmony with the equal protection mandate of the Constitution, not in conflict. Justice Kagan? General, some of your arguments, I think not all of them, but some of your arguments uh, would strongly indicate that Alabama could um, 
uh, enact a plan with no majority minority districts. Do you think Alabama could do that? Under the current guidelines, I, I don't think we would be able to because core retention is. What, what do you mean under the current guidelines? The 2021 guidelines that the bipartisan redistricting committee approved mm-hmm. and handed uh, on, over. On to your Alabama. current guidelines, I'm not interested in Alabama's current guidelines. I'm interested in whether um, you think, as a matter of federal law, as a matter of the Voting Rights Act, you are prohibited from enacting a plan that has zero majority minority districts. I think it would depend on sort of the guidelines that are being proposed there and the motivations. As court said in LULAC, breaking up an existing district is, is inherently suspect, and so that would be a much stronger case. And I'll note, LULAC is actually the only published opinion of this court where you found a Section 2 violation. So you and think that there are circumstances. I mean, uh, this is important to me because some of your arguments sweep extremely widely, maybe most of them, uh, that there are circumstances in which a population that is 27 percent of the state's population could essentially be foreclosed from electing a candidate of their choice anywhere. Your Honor, there's always going to be that intensely local appraisal to see what was going on there. Obviously, if we had had these guidelines and we passed a map that took us from one down to zero, where we retain the cores of districts one through six, but not district seven, that would be an easy case. That would be LULAC all over again. Uh, it'd be an easy case to bring. And also, I, I don't think... So it all depends on, lo- you know, just it all depends. Well, it, it all depends on what Section 2 is trying to get at. And I, I don't think... Okay, well, I think what Section try- is trying to get at is it's trying to ensure equal political opportunities. That's what, So let me just use that as a segue to my last question which is that, you know, this is an important statute. It's one of the great achievements of American democracy to achieve equal political opportunities regardless of race, to ensure that African Americans could have as much political power as, as, as white Americans could. Uh, that's a pretty big deal. And it was strengthened, this statute, in 1982 when this court interpreted it too narrowly for Congress's taste. And Congress said... No, we didn't mean that at all, and made this into a results test. Now, in recent years, the statute has fared not well in this court. Shelby County looks at Section 5, and it says, no, Section 5, we don't need that anymore. And one of the things it says is we have Section 2. And then Brnovich comes along, and that's a Section 2 case. And the court says, you know what, Uh, Section 2... They're really dilution claims. Um, you know, this is a denial claim, and, and uh, so we can construe that very narrowly. But, of course, there's just all these cases that are dilution claims. That's really what Section 2 is about. And now here we are. Section 2 is a dilution claim, this, you know, the classic Section 2 dilution claim. And you're asking us, essentially, to cut back substantially on our 40 years of precedent and to make this, too, extremely difficult to prevail on. So what's left? Uh, Justice Kagan, the Voting Rights Act has achieved tremendous gains. Uh, In 2016, for example, Alabama, black voters turned out at 4.6 points higher than white voters, even though nationwide that gap was 2.3 percent the other direction in 2018, 
Much the same story. We have the second highest black registration in the country, second only to Mississippi. Um, so I, I think we need to not lose sight of that. In terms of what Section 2 is supposed to be doing, I, I think the problem here is we're kind of in like a third generation of vote dilution claims. You have the multi-member districts is Generation 1. Generation 2 was getting rid of the racial gerrymanders. But Generation 3 is let's impose the racial gerrymanders, which I don't think Section 2 was ever designed to do. It's what's led to all this confusion, this tension between an equal openness statute and an equal protection mandate. And we're just saying, like, that cannot be what it means. What it, whatever it means, it can't be that we have to obliterate longstanding, unprecedented, I mean, un, undisputed communities of interest in favor of districts that arch across the state to connect people from Mobile and, and Dothan, which no neutral map drawer would ever do. And obviously was not the concerns of the 1982 Congress. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch? Justice Kavanaugh? I interpreted your argument in the briefs similarly to Justice Kagan and Justice Alito, that you had a broad argument which uh, struck me as asking us to rewrite jingles in in a variety of ways, Uh, and then a narrower argument focused on compactness, whether uh, the new majority-minority district proposed here was reasonably compact. Assume, just for the sake of argument, that we don't rewrite jingles and then focus on the compactness of the um, proposed majority-minority district. You get to this on page 66 of your brief, and you say, with respect to compactness, the question is whether the newly drawn district alone is sufficiently compact or whether the minority population is so sprawling that any majority-minority district cannot be reasonably configured. I agree completely that that is the question. I did not find much help on the answer, uh, and this is your opportunity to, uh, to, to answer that question. Why is it uh, — why do you think it's so sprawling, uh, given that it does <clears throat> respect a community of interest in the Black Belt, that it can't be a uh, new majority-minority district? Two points on that, Justice Kagan. As I was noting — I mean, Justice Kavanaugh, I apologize. Um, Their maps actually don't do any better for the Black Belt, and that wasn't their goal. So if you look at Duchin Plan B, I believe it is, that's a 3A of the U.S. Briefs Appendix. Um, She splits the Black Belt four ways, among four districts, those 18 core counties. And not to be outdone, Mr. Cooper, the caster plants map drawer, in his Plan 6, that's at 9A, um, he splits them five ways. So... We do just as well as them with the black belt, but we also keep but isn't together the, question, the Gulf Coast community of interest. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, isn't the question whether the new district is reasonably compact, reasonably configured? Correct. And, and as this and court so, has said, uh, on that, you look at respecting county lines, for example. Right. That's an important one. And this did this new district did just as well, if not better, in respecting county lines. At least that's the argument. So I want to hear your response to that. And the overall shape of the new district, uh, the argument on the other side is, well, that looks similar in shape to a lot of other districts that are in the state plan as well. So you don't have the kind of Shalvey, Reno, uh, bizarre map, and you don't have county lines being split more but respond to this if you want, split more than the state plan already uh, split county lines. So then the question is, why is this district not reasonably compact? And I will be candid for both sides. I don't really know how to measure reasonably compact. That's why I'm looking. I mean, that's very — there's been a lot written about. I've read a lot. 
very hard to measure, but county lines are one of the one of the measures. Well, three of the Duchin plans split more counties than necessary. The Cooper plans keep them together, but um, the same number of splits. Six is the minimum. You okay, have if have. it's the same number of splits, why is it not reasonably compact? Because they ignore other traditional districting principles. So, like we, as we've noted, pre-existing district lines, uh, core retention has been something the state has given effect to for a long time. This court in Karcher said that is a legitimate goal in redistricting. And the district court said, well, you don't have to account for that traditional districting principle because that'd make it really hard to satisfy jingles. Well, that's the whole point of the traditional districting principles inquiry is, is, is not to make it easy. It's to make sure that what they come up with is essentially playing by similar rules as the state. And, and they just got to set aside the ones that they didn't like that got in the way. That can't be what reasonably configured means or what account for traditional districting principles means. Um, and they say, well, there's no precedent for taking into account core retention. That's, that's not true. If you go back to Abrams, I mean, after Miller, with the Max, back, Max Black plan foisted upon Georgia and the 19, after the 1990 census, um, it was sent back to the district court um, who was forced to end up drawing a map for Georgia's 11 congressional districts. Georgia at that time, just like Alabama today, was 20%, 27% black population. And the judge was trying to comply with Section 2, um, including this compactness inquiry. And so he said, let's look at the traditional districting principles of the state. And one of those was retaining the course of pre-existing districts. And so he built that in to his compactness analysis, and as a result, concluded it's only possible in Georgia. Doesn't that make it a bit of a non-retrogression principle, which Section Two really was not designed to do? No, Your Honor. I, I think if you can find something wrong with those pre-existing cores, then then maybe you get to set them aside. And there's some states who don't care about pre-existing cores, and they couldn't take advantage of this. But in Georgia, they indisputably did take into account pre-existing cores. In Alabama, we indisputably do too. When the Democrats controlled the legislature in 2002 and Senator Hank Sanders from Selma, Alabama proposed the 2002 map, it looked a lot like the 1992 map. Last last question. Um, You've referred a couple times to maximization and proportionality, but my understanding is that compactness, the compactness requirement was the critical part of this inquiry under Jingles that prevents the statute from being maximization or proportionality because you can't just group together people uh, throughout the state in an attempt to maximize or seek proportionality, it has to be reasonably compact. So doesn't the compactness requirement mean that it's not a simple maximization or proportionality requirement if the compactness requirement is properly applied? If it's properly applied and they actually have to take into account our traditional district principles. But I'd like to imagine yourself as a legislator. I think I should, I should let others question now. Thanks. Justice Barrett. Mr. LaCour, um, I think I'm struggling in the same way that some others have about narrowing down exactly what your argument is. You know, I, I disagree with you and agree with Justice Kagan's characterization of the intent point. Our precedent and the statute itself says that you don't have to show discriminatory intent. So put that aside. Mm-hmm. I had understood your argument, your primary argument, to be much narrower. And I want to make sure now that I'm understanding it because now I'm questioning exactly where you're going. I'd understood you to be saying that the first jingles factor requiring reasonably configured, a reasonably configured map that showed more majority-minority districts, that that had to be race-neutral, that it was not reasonably configured if it wasn't, and that our presidents have never have left the question open. They've never said, 
one way or another, whether you could use race as a prerequisite. Here, you know, there was testimony below that it was impossible to get to the two majority minority districts if you didn't take race into account. There's the quote from the plaintiff's expert saying that you can't get there on accident, which is why it's important to do it on purpose. Yes. I understood your argument to be that the first jingles factor required the plaintiffs to come forward with a racially neutral map showing an increase in majority-minority districts because that was the way to establish a baseline from which equal opportunity could be judged in the totality of the circumstances test. Mm -hmm. And I understood you to be saying that you are being asked, all states are being asked, to navigate the rock and the hard place of the 14th Amendment and the Voting Rights Act and that if you were forced to adopt a map proposed by the plaintiffs that was racially gerrymandered because race was predominant in its drawing, that you would be violating the 14th Amendment. Therefore, the first factor of jingles required to get past the hurdle that Justice Jackson was talking about, to get past that hurdle, it required race neutrality. Is that your central argument? Because you've been talking a lot about the, the farther-reaching arguments. Yes, no, that, that is our core argument, that it cannot be that they can come forward with a map that we would never be allowed to draw, call it reasonably configured, and then force us to draw a map we would never be allowed to constitutionally draw. Uh, you can think of that either the problem is either race predominance or the problem is when race enters in to the equation, then traditional districting principles necessarily have to yield, which is what the district court found on page 214 of the Milligan Stay Appendix, non-racial considerations had to yield to race. So you can look at either as the problem is race predominance or the problem is you can't maintain, uh, you can't account, properly account for traditional districting principles if you treat race as one of those principles and necessarily force the other ones to yield. But I think it's six on one hand, half dozen in the other. What about our precedents that say that satisfying the Voting Rights Act um, is a compelling interest on the part of the states? Doesn't that get you out of the 14th Amendment problem? This Court has tellingly only ever assumed that compliance with Section 2 is a compelling interest, and uh, we don't think that race-based remedies would be a narrowly tailored remedy what if, for what whatever. If we, well, I think we might have done more than assume it. So if, if we — let's just stay with me and assume that we have so held. If we have so held, do you lose? I, I don't think we lose. I think, I mean, I think there are going to be some cases where Section 2 violation lines up with an Equal Protection Clause violation and might satisfy strict scrutiny. So, for example, if there's race in the lines, then, yeah, you have to have a race-based remedy to take the race out of the lines. But I don't think there's a sufficiently compelling interest here based on, for example, the showing that they made where they really just showed sort of broad-based societal discrimination. They didn't show anything wrong with our map, so it, it cannot be that that is specifically identified discrimination that could justify using race to change our map. I mean, you can go through the entire 250-plus pages of opinion from the district court and really kind of miss our map altogether other than the fact that it doesn't produce a second black district. And that just shows how far afield the Section 2 inquiry really has come in this case. Thank you. Justice Jackson? Yes. Um, I am so, so glad uh, for Justice Barrett's clarification because I had the same thought about what you were arguing, and I'm glad that you clarified um, that your core point is that the Jingles test has to have a race-neutral uh, baseline or that the, the first 
uh, step has to be race neutral. And, and what I guess I'm a little confused about in light of that argument is why, um, given our normal assessment of the Constitution, um, why is it that you think that there's a 14th Amendment problem? And let me just clarify what I mean by that. Um, I don't think we can assume that just because race is taken into account that that necessarily creates an equal protection problem because I understood that we looked at the history and traditions of the Constitution, at what the framers and the founders thought about. And when I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted uh, the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, in a race-conscious way, that they were, in fact, trying to ensure that people who had been discriminated against, the freedmen, um, in, during the Reconstruction period, uh, were actually uh, 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 brought equal to everyone else in the society. So I looked at the uh, report that was submitted by the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, which drafted the 14th Amendment. Um, and that report says that the entire point of the amendment was to secure rights of the freed former slaves. The legislator who introduced that amendment said that, quote, unless the Constitution should restrain them, those states will all, I fear, keep up this discrimination and crush to death the hated freedmen. That's not, um, that's not a race-neutral or race-blind idea in terms of the remedy. And, and even more than that, um, I don't think that the historical record establishes that the founders uh, believed that race neutrality or race blindness was required, right? They drafted the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which specifically stated that citizens would have the same civil rights as enjoyed by white citizens. That's the point of that act, to make sure that the other citizens, the black citizens, would have the same as the white citizens, so they recognized that there was unequal treatment, that people based on their race were being treated uh, unequally. And importantly, when there was a concern that the Civil Rights Act wouldn't have a constitutional foundation, that's when the 14th Amendment came into play. It was drafted to give a foundational, uh, a, a constitutional foundation for a piece of legislation that was designed to make people who had less opportunity and less rights equal to white citizens. So with that as the framing in the background, I'm trying to understand your position that Section 2, which by its plain text is doing that same thing, is saying you need to identify people in this community who have less opportunity and less ability to participate and ensure that that's remedied, right? It's a race-conscious effort, as you have indicated. I'm trying to understand why that violates the 14th Amendment, given the history uh, and, and background of the 14th Amendment. Uh, the 14th Amendment is a prohibition on discriminatory state action. It is not an obligation to engage in affirmative discrimination in favor of some groups vis-a-vis -vis others. No, but I, as, as the record shows that the reason why the 14th Amendment was enacted was to give a constitutional foundation for that kind of effort, for the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was doing what the Section 2 is doing here. 
Right. Which, which, which said by its terms that other citizens have to be made equal to white citizens, and people were concerned that that didn't have a constitutional basis, so they enacted the 14th Amendment. Well, this Court has specified, and I don't take the plaintiffs to be arguing that Shaw should be overruled or that Adirondack should be overruled, um, that you have to ha- — before the government goes forward and, and actually uses race um, to like, move people around into districts, for example, you have to have specific identified discrimination to justify that. And, and isn't it, that the work of the jingles factors? That's what all the factors are trying to do. Not if they're allowed to sacrifice our principles um, to come up with their maps. And if they're allowed to use race, this is the point I was making earlier, if they're allowed to use race to create their maps, then their maps can't show discrimination in our map. Uh, if you're trying to show that, that black Alabamians are being treated unequally through the 2021 plan, well, you need a plan that is neutral so you can it can be that control group and show you what's wrong with our plan. But if you're coming you're forward... You're saying you need that as a constitutional matter because... That's what the 14th Amendment requires? Say as an evidentiary matter. Um, so, so we don't have a problem that the Constitution is creating. It's as an evidentiary matter, we have to have neutrality. Well, no, Your Honor. If, if their evidence is bad, then you run the risk of replacing a neutral plan with a plan drawn on account of race, which would create its own Section 2 violations. I think a, a white Republican in Mobile, or a black Republican in Mobile for that matter, who's gerrymandered, into the new District 2 and connected with people on the Georgia border would have a Section 2 claim himself because his vote has been abridged on account of race. So you can't read Section 2 that way. Equal openness and equal protection need to line up, and they don't under the plaintiff's approach. And we need a benchmark because obviously we need some clarity in this space. We've offered a benchmark. I've seen no benchmark in the briefs from the United States or the plaintiffs, and, and maybe they can illuminate that for us in just a moment. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Ross? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, there is nothing race-neutral about Alabama's map. The District Court's unanimous and thorough, intensely local analysis did not err in finding that the Black Belt is a historic and extremely poor community of substantial significance. Yet Alabama's map cracks that community and allows white black voting to deny black voters the opportunity to elect representation responsive to their needs. Rather than argue clear error, Alabama asks us to ignore statutory stare decisis and to rewrite Section 2's text. But the Voting Rights Act is a remedial statute that Congress has twice reenacted since Jingles, and its application here raises no constitutional concerns. That is because plaintiff's maps show consistent with Bartlett that it is possible to draw maps that look very similar to Alabama's own Board of Education map and that increase opportunities for minority voters while satisfying traditional and state redistricting criteria at least as well as Alabama's map. Nothing in the text of Section 2 allows Alabama to avoid liability by offering up these post hoc rationalizations of simulations and core retention for maps that result in discrimination. In fact, Alabama called simulations fundamentally flawed for not reproducing its own map and for not incorporating all traditional redistricting criteria. At Jingles 1, this court requires us to use sample plans that Alabama is not ultimately obligated to adopt. But those plans need not be the ultimate remedy, and that's because, as this court said in Brnovich, Section 2 looks at the totality of the circumstances, not as Alabama would have it, the totality of just one. 
Section 2 is not an intent test or about putting on racial blinders. It is about equal opportunity, opportunity that Alabama's map denies black voters. Thank you. Uh, Counsel, do you agree with the Solicitor General's statement uh, in in, uh, her brief, I don't know exactly what the page is, that the argument that your friend on the other side makes about the the race-neutral simulations, uh, that argument can be taken into account under the totality of the circumstances? Your Honor, I think simulations are about uh, intent, and they're not about uh, results. But if it were to be taken into account as a part of the totality of the circumstances, I think it um, could be a factor that goes to the uh, an issue of remedy. And here we know that uh, Dr. Dushan conducted simulations using race as one factor among many others and said that she could create literally thousands of two districts with majority minority districts. And even EMI, where he used race-blind simulations, came out with plans that looked very similar to the Singleton plan, which allowed for two crossover districts where minority voters would have a fair chance to elect their candidates of choice in at least two districts. Can I ask you about can I ask you about the first Gingles precondition? The court said, what the court said exactly in Gingles was that uh, there must be a sufficiently large that the minority group must be quote sufficiently large and compact to constitute a majority in a reasonably configured district. It didn't say in a reasonably compact district. It said reasonably configured. So would you agree that whether a district is reasonably configured takes into account more than simply whether it is compact, but also whether it is a, the kind of district that a, an unbiased mapmaker would draw? Your Honor, again, Section 2, as you know, is about intent and not doesn't speak to — or, excuse me, is about results and doesn't speak to intent. And so, um, you know, with respect to the biases of a mapmaker, I'm not sure — if that's relevant. But I will say, as this Court has acknowledged, that Jingles 1 does take into consideration compliance with traditional redistricting criteria. And those redistricting criteria that the state, uh, that this Court has listed are compactness, contiguity, respect for communities of interest, and political subdivisions. And the District Court found on all of those uh, that plaintiff's plans meet or beat Alabama. So even if a computer simulation that takes into account all of the traditional districting standards would almost never, in a million simulations, it would never produce a second majority minority district. Uh, This first Gingles factor is satisfied? Your Honor, uh, that's not the case here. Um, Again, plaintiff's experts Yeah, it's a hypothetical. I understand, Your Honor. If that were the case, would the first Gingles uh, criteria be that requirement be satisfied? Your Honor, I, I'm not sure because this Court said in Bartlett that plaintiffs were required to draw an additional majority-minority district. And so perhaps it would go to the fact that, uh, you know, that maybe you can't have a, a, a remedy that meets Jingles 1. But I would also say that you have the option of drawing a narrowly tailored district that, where race may predominate, as this Court recognized in Bethune-Hill. So you think that the first factor is satisfied, the first requirement is satisfied, If it's possible, you set out to draw this second district, you want to maximize, and if you can do that, you satisfy the first factor. 
Not at all, Your Honor. We're, uh, we, we're not saying that satisfying Jingles 1 requires maximization. And as I said, you know, it's certainly possible that if you can show that it's, it's truly impossible to draw a compact district, then no, you wouldn't get a, a, a second, uh, you wouldn't satisfy Jingles 1. And I think what's important here is, you know, a plaintiff's expert said it's possible numerically to draw three districts, but she didn't set it out to do that. What she set out to do was to draw districts that look very much like Alabama's map. And this is not, again, the map that anyone has to adopt. It's an illustrative map. There are maps out there in the campaign legal center amicus brief in, in the Singleton plan that, that don't uh, require maximization. Well, if, you could, if she could draw three, then why, wasn't, why isn't that required? Because this because court that has, would exceed the proportion of black voters in Alabama? Not at all, Your Honor. My point was merely that numerically it's possible to draw more, but plaintiffs aren't asking for that. Plaintiffs aren't even asking well, for a suppose map. suppose you did. Would you satisfy the first Gingles factor? I don't here think is you a could. map. We, we come forward. Here is a map. Produces three majority-minority districts, uh, and uh, it's compact. It's reasonably com- they're reasonably compact. So you've got to you satisfied the first factor. No, Your Honor, because you need to look at. Perhaps you could satisfy the first factor, but I don't. It's unlikely that you would be able to to meet the other factors. What and if Grandy, this court said. What, what if you could? Your Honor, I don't think that the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act at all requires maximization, and here you couldn't meet Jingles 1, and so we're not in any way suggesting that. And one other, uh, Your Honor, you know, what plaintiffs are really looking for is not any sort of guarantee of a second majority-minority district. As I said, we'd be satisfied with something like the Singleton Plan, which Alabama's experts said would give black voters at least a fair chance, not even a guaranteed chance, to elect their candidates of choice in a second district. That's merely what, what plaintiffs are looking for. Counsel, um, if we were to say, as um, opposing counsel is now claiming, that you have to show uh, uh, the possibility of a second district um, on a race-neutral map, uh, do we vacate and remand? Do you have enough below to win even under that standard? Your Honor, uh, you know, I'm not sure what um, Mr. LaCour means by a race-neutral standard. I think certainly it is uh, — this is up on a preliminary injunction. And so uh, if there were a standard that became a new standard, then we would, uh, you know, like it to be remanded. I think that any standard that requires some sort of race blindness, as Alabama is saying, would not only make it difficult for plaintiffs to satisfy Jingles 1, but would make it for, difficult for states to draw you know, the 435 congressional maps um, that we have. Uh, now, uh, um, opposing counsel in his summation uh, was talking about the idea of race neutrality. Um, Section 2 was really at a, aimed at a results test, uh, equal opportunity or participation. Um, Section 2 is not being used that widely, is it? I read Amikai Chen's brief, and he says that uh, there's only been 31 vote dilution cases that resulted in merits decision over the last two redistricting cycles. That's out of 435 plans. And that only eight were successful. I believe that that's true. Um, And Gingles itself makes this remedy available only in an extreme circumstance where voters are polarized completely. 
and where there's no crossover between the races, correct? That's correct, Your Honor, and, and where you meet so the totality. so Alabama itself is unique in that regard, isn't it? Absolutely, Your Honor. Um, there's racially polarized voting in Democratic and Republican primaries. There's racially polarized voting in general elections. Um, and there's a very recent history of racial discrimination in Alabama that may not exist in other states. That was, that was part of the totality of circumstances that yes, this Your report Honor. found to suggest you're describing Alabama's cracking of the black district for decades, correct? Yes, Your Honor. And I do want to point out that on uh, on the stay appendix at page 177, the district court did find that Alabama cracked the black belt. Thank you, counsel. Justice Thomas? Thank you. Oh, Justice Alito? Justice Sotomayor, anything further? Justice Gorsuch? Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, the, the other side says that uh, the proposed districts are not reasonably compact. And I, as I was mentioning, I think compactness is the key under our precedence to interpreting Section 2 correctly and uh, the equal protection requirements. And they say the districts are too sprawling to be considered reasonably compact or reasonably configured. And I just want to get your response to that because I think that's the critical point here. Yeah. Yes, Your Honor. Again, I think the district court's findings, which are subject to clear error, made clear that uh, plaintiff's plans met or beat Alabama on the compactness requirement. With respect to, you know, uh, Alabama's allegation that our map goes, uh, that our plan goes across the state, so does some of Alabama's plan. And again, Alabama's own Board of Education map, which was drawn at the same time, using the same redistricting criteria, which in Alabama's guidelines includes race, um, created virtually the same district that also spreads across the state. Um, and then, Your Honor, you, ha- you had a question earlier about, you know, what these traditional redistricting guidelines are. This court in Perry versus Perez uh, recognized that, you know, they, uh, when you're drawing remedial maps, that you have to take in consideration state and local redistricting criteria, except to those, the extent those criteria violate uh, Section 2. And here, Core retention is, is nearly always going to violate uh, Section 2, and, and our plans tried to take those into, that factor into account as much as possible without perpetuating the violation. Thank you. Justice Barrett? Just one question. Um, if we interpret Jingles Step 1 as you propose, um, is the result of the test to say that a state must maximize so long as it can do so in reasonably compact districts? Not at all, Your Honor. This Court has recognized for 30 years that maximization is not necessary. And just because you can draw an additional district doesn't mean that you would satisfy any of the other traditional, uh, excuse me, any of the other um, uh, racial polarization, a totality of the circumstances. And that's why this Court in DeGrande added in proportionality as, as a part of the totality so that it prevented maximization from being a, a goal of Section 2. Thank you. Justice Jackson? And I would take it that that is why um, this whole jingle scheme has been thought of as self-liquidating in a way. Um, it's because... You know, it it only triggers in situations in which um, you have this compactness, uh, you know, presumably due to the racial polarization or stratification of this kind of district, and people are continuing to vote in racial block, racially blocked ways. But if that stopped happening, if what we all want, which would be people to spread out and live among one another and vote based on their, you know, own views as opposed to along racial lines, then we wouldn't have 
a, a, a Section 2 violation. Is that correct? That's exactly correct, Your Honor. Um, and, you know, I think it's really important uh, to take a look at uh, the seven office brief, which, which makes that point, and also the computational redistricting amicus brief, which makes the point of how, you know, using computer simulations are really not the way to get at the issues that Jingles 1 is, is uh, concerned with. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Ms. Khanna? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Alabama seeks to upend the Section 2 standard that has governed redistricting for nearly 40 years. But Alabama's novel theories not only defy statutory text and precedent, they would cause profound upheaval for courts, states, and minority voters. Requiring a race-blind demonstration at Jingles 1 would bury courts in litigation, new litigation challenging maps created in reliance on the existing standard. Make no mistake, nearly every majority-minority district would become a litigation target. Alabama's reliance on untested simulations would unravel decades of progress and take us back to a time with little to no minority representation at the federal, state, and local levels. This Court should reaffirm its established Section 2 standard because it works. It limits the scope of liability, and it ensures that with increased progress comes decreased enforcement. In many places, racially polarized voting and racial segregation are declining, making satisfaction of jingles impossible. But as three judges agreed, that is not yet the case in Alabama. I welcome the Court's questions. And I'll pick up where... um, Yes. um, Is there a scholarship or or empirical evidence of... If if this um, if the Alabama argument about having to produce a race neutral map at Gingles one, if that's their core argument, as General Lacour said, and you just suggested that that would lead to a very substantial decrease in majority minority districts, how substantial is there good evidence about that? I believe that the uh, the amicus brief from Professors Chen and Stephanopoulos talks about various studies that have been done that would show that if we were to apply these these race blind simulations, they would obliterate a number of majority minority. A number, like how many, I, or, I, or what? You know, is it half? Is it a quarter? Does anybody know? I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, unfortunately. I do know that at least in the, for instance, in one of the, st- the state houses of Alabama, they mentioned that it would cause a decrease of some, you know, three to seven majority black districts. Um, why, why is it that that uh, happens? I mean, I, I think, you know, one way when you read these briefs that you might react to them is like, how hard could it be to come up with a race-neutral map given all these computer simulations? I think that that's a kind of understandable reaction to it. So what's the answer to that? I think there's a couple of answers, Your Honor. First of all, when a lot of these districts were drawn pursuant to the Voting Rights Act, including in Alabama itself, 1992 was a court-ordered plan uh, where CD7 was created for the first time. So these districts were not necessarily drawn in this an idea that they were had to be race-blind or race-neutral. They were solving a, a problem of racial discrimination that they were looking at race in order to solve that problem. They were not necessarily drawn in a race-neutral way. I also think that the 
the fact that these simulations are not capturing these exist these communities and these districts, many of which have been in place for meant for a long time, uh, goes to the fundamental flaw of overly relying on these simulations. And I think this is important to recognize that you know a lot of a lot of stock has been put in these stim- simulations in the course of this appellate argument. Um, but as as my friend recognized, these were fun- these were deemed by the state to be fundamentally flawed below. And there's a few reasons why it is just in both impractical as a, as, a, as a practical matter, as a policy matter, these simulations just are not any kind of gold standard. They are not this objective race-neutral benchmark that, that anyone might think that they are. They are the result of a host of very subjective decisions going into the process uh, about which considerations to take into account and how to quantify them. Do, do you understand uh, Alabama's argument to be that the plaintiffs have to show that the map they come forward with is race neutral or uh, that if the state, I mean, the play, it may be that this, the plaintiff ha- can satisfy its burden of production with respect to the first Gingles requirement by coming up with any map that uh, — is reasonably con- that, that that can be uh, uh, proffered is reasonably configured, but that if the state then comes up with the sort of simulations that occurred here, which were done by the way by plaintiffs' experts, right, not by the state's experts, then when the court has to decide whether the first Gingles factor is satisfied, it can take those into account. To answer the question of what do I understand the state's position to be, I have to say I'm not entirely sure. I think it did, it varies. Perhaps maybe my understanding varies depending on the brief and on what has been argued here today. Okay. Well, suppose it is what I just said, that it's not the burden of production. It's the ultimate burden of proof if the state chooses to come forward with this kind of evidence. I think that the, the problem with this kind of evidence – and setting aside for a second is the fact that it doesn't actually purport to do what the state might think it purports to do, um, is, is that it really has nothing to do with the Jingles inquiry in some ways. Jingles inquiry is a basic demographic question about how big is the black population and where are they located. And when this court discussed the Jingles 1 standard in, in Bartlett, it emphasized that the point of the Jingles 1 standard was to create an objective administrable rule, not just for courts and litigants, but also for states themselves. But you think reasonable configure, this is an important distinction to me, at least, between compactness, which I understand to mean just geography, and configuration. Do you think that the first Gingles factor is just about compactness, or does it take into account other things? I believe the first Jingles factor takes into account a variety of traditional districting criteria, just as the district court mentioned below. And here, on those almost every single metric, the illustrative plans meet or beat the enacted plan. Whether or not some hypothetical simulations, many of which are not even in the record, may or may not have come up with that exact configuration, um, doesn't answer the question that, that plaintiffs are tasked with, which is, is it possible? We came into court and showed, yes, it is possible based on the demography of Alabama. Uh, And again, that is just the initial threshold screening um, after which we have to go through a gauntlet of objective uh, and and qualitative and quantitative. Well, okay, put aside whether or not these are good simulations. But if you have a simulation that takes into account all of the traditional districting factors but does not take into account race or any proxy for race, such as a community of interest that is defined by race. And you can't get 
a majority, an additional majority minority district when you do that simulation. What's the consequence? I don't believe there is a consequence at Jingles 1. That would be a wholesale rewrite of the standard to all of a sudden to say that that coming into court with a map that a district court is able to find is reasonably configured on a variety of metrics is not enough. How can it be reasonably configured if you can't get that map with a computer simulation that takes into account all of the traditional race-neutral districting factors? That's that's kind of my — what I don't get — I can't understand. How can that be reasonably configured? Well, uh, certainly, as you, I understand the hypothetical is that this is, this is some kind of perfect simulation that is able to separate out race cri- race based criteria, racial proxies, uh, even if we existed in that world. And I, I think it's clear we do not. Um, ultimately, the, the the test is to show how can you come in with a map, not a million maps, not 10 percent of a million maps. It's what is possible, not necessarily what is probable. And as long as plaintiffs are able to show, is to, to meet that, that basic demographic threshold question, uh, making, I think, turning Jingles 1 into its own trial within a trial, making it a battle of the simulations experts, would be entirely contrary to what this Court intended in Bartlett. Ms. Khanna, I thought, I thought your answer was going to be that the reason why um, we don't have those simulations or need those simulations or that they have nothing to do with jingles is because the question of configuration is not about the intent of the mapmaker. That when um, Justice Alito says we're looking at the configuration that could be drawn by an unbiased mapmaker, the suggestion, I think, is that we care about whether or not the person who's drawing the map is trying to discriminate against the people who are being reconfigured. Or, you know, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, and sure. so the reason why it's irrelevant at jingle step one is because intent is not being considered at jingle step one per what Congress has told us about how the Section 2 is supposed to work. Am I right about that? That's absolutely correct, Your Honor. The intent behind uh, a Jingles 1 demonstration has nothing to do with the ultimate finding of liability. All right. Well, forget about intent. So you you were looking at results. What are the results when you do a computer simulation that takes into account all race-neutral districting factors that have been accepted by this Court? And the result is, not the intent — this is a computer. It doesn't have any intent. The result is — that you don't get the second minority, uh, majority minority district. I think the reason why that doesn't actually answer the question, Your Honor, is because the simulations actually generate more questions than they answer. Even if you were to uh, charge it with taking into account race-neutral criteria, there is a lot of subjectivity in going into how you even code that. The uh, Alabama's expert here below acknowledged that that did not testify that our maps were not reasonably compact and acknowledged there is no bright-line rule. So even inputting those criteria into a computer algorithm requires coming up with some bright-line rules that don't currently exist. Instead, what we have is a reasonableness inquiry that the district court provided here by looking at a variety of criteria to determine whether or not uh, the Jingles 1 test was satisfied. Thank you, counsel. Justice Thomas? I do, counsel. Um, Justice Alito gave the game away when he said race-neutral means don't look at community of interest because it's a proxy for race. Regrettably, that is what it is 
in many situations. That's why Mobile and Baldwin are together. Um, no matter what they talk about being around the river or not, um, that has very little to do with anything other than race, um, that they come generations later from Germany, from France or Spain. Um, but the point that he's making um, turns Section 2 on its head, doesn't it? Because there's no such thing as racial neutrality in Section 2. It's explicitly saying that a protected group must be given equal participation, correct? Yes, Your Honor. And so uh, indifference to racial inequality is exactly what Section 2 is barring or prohibiting, correct? Yes, Your Honor. Um, having said that, um, assuming that you could draw a racially neutral map that did take into account true community of interest, do you believe that the maps, that you didn't meet that burden below? I don't believe that question was ever asked because it's never been posed to plaintiffs, states, or courts that the Jingles 1 standard required a race-blind showing. The Jingles 1 question is a demographic question about where is the minority population. And I think it would be — it certainly would be the first time this Court has instructed that plaintiffs actually have to tie one hand behind their demographer's back and blind him to the actual demography I do, of the I state. do remember the Milligan expert testifying that um, — as to whether he could draw a race-blind algorithm and whether it could produce a map with two majority black districts, and the expert testified it certainly could, correct? I think that's right, Your Honor, and that's the — what goes to show that these algorithms, and as we hear from the Milligan plaintiff's expert, as well as several of the amici here, the algorithms, when properly interpreted, will, will encompass what is possible. The problem you can't do is keep core — the historically core districts, because that's infused with the racial inequality, correct? Yes. The problem with the core preservation is somehow this trump card uh, is both a practical one and a policy one. As a practical matter, when Jingles and Bartlett require plaintiffs to come into court with, an, with, an, with a new district, it's, it's by nature a district that has not yet been drawn. It is a new map that's going to be different. Uh, and as a policy matter, this goes precisely to why Congress adopted a results test in 1982 to begin with, which was so that we, the, the states could not uh, utilize old ways of doing things and entrench discriminatory schemes just by um, perpetuating them over the course. Thank you. Justice Kagan? Justice Gorsuch? Justice Kavanaugh? Justice Barrett? I just want to return to the questions about the computer simulators. So you were saying that they're inherently subjective because it depends on how you weight factors and what factors you put in. I just want to be sure I understand what you mean by that, because it seems to me that if you can generate, if there's no limit on how many maps the computer simulator can generate, surely that gives them the option to weigh in all kinds of different ways. And it also seems to me, and maybe I'm misunderstanding Alabama's proposal, but it also seems to me that under Alabama's view of the statute, the plaintiff satisfies Jingles 1 by coming in with one map that was drawn without taking race into account. So why, if there's no limit to the number of maps you can generate and the different factors you can weigh, so long as race isn't one, why would that be an unreasonable burden for a plaintiff to shoulder? For several reasons, Your Honor. First, I think uh, 
it's important to recognize that there are a handful of college professors who even have the expertise to run these race, these, simu- these simulations in the first place. So if we were all of a sudden going to infuse what was supposed to be an objective and administrable test at the outset with this highly specific and highly technical um, requirement, that would essentially be delegating VRA enforcement to the handful well, of... Well, let me just be clear. I don't... I would not propose, and I don't understand Alabama to propose either, that you have to use these maps at step one. I mean, it seems to me that you could satisfy that race neutral test by just having a map jar come in and say, I drew this and I didn't do it um, in an effort to get to majority minority districts. That wasn't my non-negotiable goal. So I don't, I don't, I wasn't suggesting that. I was just asking the technical question. You said that these computer simulations are not neutral by definition because they require subjective judgments in the programming. So if you could answer that. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, The subjective judgments in the programming are basically about what considerations to have in the first place. We know that the ones at issue here did not include a host of considerations. How do you quantify some of those considerations, like communities of interest and compactness? It's not like we have a bright line rule that says a 0.3 district is or is not compact. You have to come to some kind of agreement uh, or decision among the, the experts or among the court on what these factors are. How do we weight the various factors? Do some get more importance depending on their fault where they fall in the state's traditional decision criteria as reflected in their guidelines or something else? How do we interpret the results? Does it need to be a million, two million, three trillion? As we learn from the computer scientists' um, uh, amicus brief, there could be trillions and trillions that certainly will at some point come up with at least one possible configuration. Or we can just use this test that this court has always established, which is as long as you come into court with a map that shows the potential to draw a majority black district that is reasonably configured according to the state's traditional districting principles, then that is sufficient to get past just the first post and not the gauntlet of remaining factors after that. Thank you. Justice Jackson. Yes, so um, following up on Justice Barrett's question, setting aside the practicalities of uh, the map-making process, which is basically what you've been focusing on, I think the question is um, why should we make the Jingles 1 challengers do that? In other words, it seems as though some of my colleagues are asking the question, if, you know, if you, you have a million maps and you can generate a million maps, why shouldn't we require that one map be drawn in a race-neutral way? And I actually think the question is, why should we require at Jingle Step 1 that a map be drawn in a race-neutral way? And there are two possibilities, right? It's, one possibility is because that's what Congress would have wanted. But when I read Section 2, I don't see that Congress is requiring race neutrality. In fact, the language beyond equally open is equally open by participation of members in a particular uh, class of citizens in that its members have less opportunity than other members. So it seems as though Congress is authorizing the consideration of race. And then the second question is, all right, why should we do this? Because the Constitution requires some sort of race neutrality. And based on my colloquy with, uh, with, with your friend on the other side, I think that the Constitution doesn't require it. So am I, do I have the question right, why should we require this? Or does Justice Barrett have the question right, why shouldn't we? 
I, I think all of the questions are correct. Fundamentally, there's no basis uh, for there's no basis for injecting this new this new simulation standard or race neutral standard into Jingles One. It was not the purpose of of the Section Two standard as created by Congress. It is not at all required under the Constitution. It would be a brand new principle that really doesn't serve any end. And the end result is. End result gets us to the exact same place that we have right now, which is, is it possible to show up in court with a district that meets these criteria? And to the, you know, and here, where we talk about what does, what does the usual map drawer in Alabama draw? What is considered a sprawling district in Alabama? The best place to look is to the very guidelines that, mis- that my friend on the other side uh, specifically mentioned. And those guidelines take into account contiguity, compactness, political subdivision boundaries, precincts, all of these things that our maps performed as good or better, and they also take into account race. Uh, and they say that you complying with the Voting Rights Act shall come before anything else and specifically including core preservations and communities of interest. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. General Prelegar. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The District Court's factual findings make this an extreme and atypical case of vote dilution. Voting in Alabama is intensely racially polarized, about as stark as anywhere in the country. The history and effects of racial discrimination in the state are severe, black voters are significantly underrepresented, and they're sufficiently numerous and compact to form a majority in a reasonably configured district, as the district court specifically found. Section 2's results test was designed for this kind of case. For that reason, Alabama isn't asking the court to apply Section 2 as it's been applied for the past 40 years. Instead, Alabama is asking the court to radically change the law by inserting this concept of race neutrality and effectively limiting Section 2 to intentional discrimination. That approach would delete the text that Congress added in 1982 to cover results. It disregards nearly four decades of this court's precedent, and it would have drastic real-world consequences. Under the state's approach, nothing would stop Alabama and many other states from dismantling their existing majority-minority districts, leaving black voters in entire swaths of the country with no ability to elect their preferred representatives. The court should reject that destabilizing and atextual interpretation of Section 2. I'd like to turn, if I could, to the questions that Justice Barrett and Justice Jackson were just asking about the narrower form of Alabama's argument, and specifically whether it makes sense to put plaintiffs to the burden of showing that they can draw their maps in a race-neutral way. And I think the problem with that approach is that it's contrary to the text, would be unworkable in practice, and it also is unnecessary to address the concern Alabama's raising about unconstitutional districts. So if I could just unpack that a little bit. Specifically with respect to the text, the problem with using race neutrality is the touchstone here is that's inherently focused on motives or purposes in designing the districts. And I think one thing that has been clear for the past four decades ever since Congress amended the statute is that that is no longer the necessary requirement well, under Section What about equal two. opportunity? So that's my concern. You know, as Judge Easterbrook said in the Seventh Circuit, that you have to have a baseline equal as to what? And if the vote is going to be diluted, you know, it's diluted as compared to what? To the opportunity. I mean, I, I think if, I think that's the part of the statute that concerns me in thinking about neutrality. Because I, I agree with you that it does not require intent. I agree with you about the results test. But the equal opportunity is what I'm thinking of. So I think 
to focus on that in particular, the statute goes on specifically to define what it means by equal opportunity, Justice Barrett, and it's setting up a comparison between two groups of voters. Specifically, do minority voters have less opportunity than other members of the electorate? So it's right there in the statute creating the the baseline or the comparison group. Now, I get that that's what I think is the easy part of the equation, and then it just raises the question of when you can say that minority voters have less opportunity within the terms of the statute. And there, I think the Jingles framework already guides courts to the relevant factors to take into account. It's the three preconditions and then the rigorous analysis of the totality of the circumstances that's critical to making that quintessentially legal judgment of when there's less opportunity. But if I could pick up on the idea as well of why I think it would be so unworkable in practice to try to inject this idea of race neutrality, you know, the whole function of the first jingles precondition is to require plaintiffs to show that you can intentionally create a majority-minority district. And if they have to do that without taking any account of race, then they effectively have to kind of stumble into the district by accident. And I think that will inevitably lead to running these kinds of simulations that have been discussed at length this morning that are incredibly complicated to try to operationalize. If if the race-neutral simulations are as bad as you say, why do you say they should be taken into account at the totality of the circumstances inquiry? Well, I think it's a really critical distinction, Mr. Chief Justice, because what I'm pushing back on here is the idea that you should transform Jingles 1 by always requiring this as necessary evidence in every case. But, but as we yeah, explained in our brief— Yeah, but you haven't really said you shouldn't make this necessary, but you can still consider it because it shows this or this. You've really said— it doesn't show anything at all, and in fact, it's bad. Uh, so, how does it, it? In other words, it's not much of a sop to them to say, "Oh, well, look at that in the totality of the circumstances case." Well, I think it can be relevant in the totality of the circumstances, specifically to push back against any allegations of intentional discrimination that might have been made in a case, and because it tracks the factor that this court already enumerated as one relevant consideration, which is whether the state's policy is tenuous. So, this is a, a totality test, a statutorily prescribed totality test. We're not suggesting that the evidence would be wholly or relevant, but I do think that it would be an incredibly complicated obstacle to trying to litigate these cases if it were necessary at jingle step one for the plaintiffs to duke it out among their experts and debate about all of the things to feed into the algorithm to to identify whether it's truly race You're suggesting that the the, uh, argument is that the plaintiff has to run these simulations and show that the district that they proffer is race neutral. But why is that the argument? Why isn't, why, why isn't the argument that the plaintiff can satisfy its burden of production by coming forward with the kind of maps that they came forward here? But that's not the end of the Court's consideration of the first Gingles factor. And if there is other evidence showing that this map uh, is not the kind of map that would be drawn based on other tradi- uh, based on traditional race-neutral factors, then the Gingles, and, and the court is persuaded of that, then the Gingles, for, the first Gingles condition is not satisfied. Well, our concern is with packing this into the first jingles precondition itself, because that is meant to function as a relatively straightforward threshold screen on the plaintiff's allegations, essentially to pressure test whether the plaintiffs can even draw a reasonably configured district. Well, isn't so it as, ask- a, as a practical matter, in every place in the South, and maybe in other places, if the first Gingles factor, first Gingles condition can be satisfied, will not the plaintiffs always run the table? Where, where can they win? They're not going to win on whether 
the minority group is politically cohesive. They're not going to win on whether the majority votes as a block, which may be due to ideology and not have anything to do with race. It may be that black voters and white voters prefer different candidates now because they have different ideas about what uh, the government should do. Where, where is — you know, where can the state win once it gets past — once it loses on the first Gingles condition? I think the state can win on any uh, other of the relevant factors in the totality of the circumstances. And I want to resist strongly this idea that any time plaintiffs have been able to satisfy that first jingles precondition, they automatically prove their case. This is a rigorous burden on plaintiffs. Of course, they have to show the patterns of racially polarized voting in the second and third preconditions. And courts then go on to look at all of the relevant circumstances in the totality analysis. And if you actually look at actual results in these cases, uh, there are, are steadily decreasing Section 2 claims that are filed in the first place, and then it's not as though plaintiffs always prevail in those claims. Courts routinely reject them because the other factors aren't satisfied. So I think it would just be incorrect to suggest at the outset that simply by virtue of showing that first threshold screen, the plaintiffs are are going to be able to run the table. And I want to make clear that the jingles preconditions only screen out meritless cases. They're never dispositive of liability in and of themselves. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, You said the jingles uh, first precondition is straightforward. Uh, Compactness is, I think, the central issue in the first precondition, and I find that not always so straightforward. Uh, And I wanted you to tell me why you think this uh, proposed district or they've proposed something that is reasonably compact or reasonably configured. In your brief on 16 and 17, I think you identify it lacks the bizarre shapes that the Court has found problematic and performs at least as well as the plan in respecting existing political subdivisions, so kind of a comparison to the state's plan. Uh, Anything else you would identify that should be uh, part of the compactness uh, inquiry? Because the states and the plaintiffs and the district courts are all struggling, I think, with how do you measure compactness, and that's why I think this is such a difficult inquiry under just taking current law. I think it is certainly the case that it's an inherently factual question, and it requires, as this Court has said, an intensely local appraisal of all the facts and circumstances in the jurisdiction. But I would point in particular to the District Court's comprehensive analysis of this. And what the Court did is look at every traditional redistricting criteria in Alabama, compactness, contiguity, equalizing population across districts, respect for the political subdivision boundary lines and municipalities, not splitting counties, as you mentioned, and protecting communities of interest, as when well you, as... When you use compactness there as the first of those, were you referring to how big the district is? Yes, it's generally a, a, a geographic compactness yeah. inquiry, both of the district itself, but also of the minority population that would be drawn together within that district. And the, the court here applied a number of different measures. As your question indicated, there are several different methods and how to measure compactness in redistricting litigation. The court here went through all of them, and it said that down the line, looking at the traditional districting criteria, these districts, as my friend said, performed as well or better than the enacted plan on nearly all of the relevant criteria. And that's, of course, something this court has recognized is reviewable only for clear error. So to the extent that you think that this is a tough question and maybe a different fact finder could have reached a different result, I think that's precisely why the court has recognized that the district court's decision Uh, merits a substantial amount of deference in this kind of area. 
I'd like to, if I could, try to complete my answer on why I think trying to incorporate race neutrality into the first jingles precondition is also unnecessary. If I understand the state's argument correctly, the state is suggesting that this is the way to ensure that a state's not required to draw an unconstitutional racial gerrymander on the back end at the remedial stage. And I think the problem with that argument is it ignores that there are already, uh, I would say, four independent checks in existing doctrine that ensure the state will never be put in that position. The first thing is the fact that the Jingles First precondition already requires that the district not be bizarrely shaped. It has to be reasonably configured, so we're in a world where there would never be an illustrative plan that itself constituted that kind of behemoth district that the court disapproved in cases like Shaw. The second thing I would point to is that the state is wrongly equating any use of race in the redistricting process with an unconstitutional action, and, and that ignores the careful lines this court has drawn in the Shaw line of cases to make clear that it's only when race predominates, when it's the overriding and dominant rationale, that the state has to justify its map under strict scrutiny. And, and here it bears emphasis, the district court specifically found race did not predominate, and that's another thing that's reviewed for clear error. Well, if, the, if a computer simulation can produce this second majority-minority district only by insisting that uh, this, that district be created, subordinating all the other districting factors to race. Isn't that predominance? Well, the way that this Court has described the predominant standard is that the, the state has basically subjugated all of their traditional districting criteria. It's often revealed by the fact that the district is bizarre by any measure and is irregularly shaped, although that's not an absolute requirement. But I think that the first jingles precondition already guards against that because, of course, to satisfy step one of the framework, the plaintiff has to come in with a reasonably configured district at the outset. I, I don't really understand uh, your answer to my question. If a computer program can produce this district only by uh, making the creation of that district uh, the sine qua non uh, and subordinating everything else, isn't that the very definition of, of predominance? I, th- I think not has this court has articulated the standard. So the court has recognized, for example, or has never suggested that simply because you intentionally create a majority minority district that automatically means in every case that race predominated. And in the Bethune Hill case, the court specifically remanded a a case where there had been a 55 percent target used for the district court to make a finding on predominance. So I don't think that that is inevitably the answer. And the reason for that is because it's often possible to give great attention and weight to other districting criteria. That's specifically what the plaintiff's experts did here, according to the district court's factual findings. And not just possible, required. I mean, there's not a subordination of the other districting criteria. It's as if, you know, in a hypothetical world, it's as if there are 50 normal, uh, you know, regular traditional criteria and the computer runs the 50 and the challenger's experts run the 50 and they add race. And the question, as, as criteria 51, and the question I would think from the standpoint of predominance would be, is the consideration of that one additional factor, which would necessarily produce different maps, because if you change one small part of an algorithm, you would see that you might have different results. So, fine, we have different results because the experts use 51 criteria and the computer used 50, but the question, I think, is whether just the use of that extra one, because it differentiates, means that it predominates. And I don't think that's what what Shaw 
means when it says predominant. Am I right about that? Or Yes, I think you're exactly right, Justice Jackson. And the court, in fact, in this line of cases has said that legislators are always aware of race when they draw district lines. That alone isn't a basis to condemn their maps or even subject it to strict scrutiny, specifically to ensure that federal courts aren't too readily called in to superintend the state line drawing process. And so I think that this court's precedents rightly recognize that states deserve a measure of flexibility in managing all of the competing interests that go into districting decisions, and that can quite properly include obligations under the Voting Rights Act. Thank you, Counsel. Justice Thomas? Justice Alito, any further? Justice Sotomayor? Justice Kagan? Do you you understand? I'm going to ask you a question about uh, Alabama's argument, and maybe I should have asked it to Alabama's lawyer, but he can listen, and you're there. So... (laughs) I'll do what I can. Do you understand why Alabama should be satisfied with this idea of if you can just produce one race-neutral map? I mean, if the theory here is that you can run millions of these programs and that we care about race neutrality for any of the reasons that Alabama suggests we ought to at the first step of Jingles, at the first precondition, why would one be enough? If you ran one, shouldn't the state come back and say, well, you need more than one in a million? Surely, like, you should have a hundred. Surely you should have a thousand. Surely it should be the median map. I mean, why one? I think this is exactly the under-theorized aspect of Alabama's approach here, because they don't try to answer any of those questions, either about how you operationalize the standard and agree upon how to program the algorithm to take account of all of the complex constellation of redistricting criteria, or how you interpret the results along the lines you were suggesting. Is is one map enough? Do you need a 100, a 1,000? They don't say. And I think that that just demonstrates that this is an incredibly untested form of evidence. It's never been required in Section 2 litigation. And I think trying to insert this as an insuperable uh, requirement in Jingle Step 1 would cause all kinds of complicated litigation and battles of the experts about how to even interpret and run those types of simulations. Justice Gorsuch? Are you aware of any efforts in Congress to alter how the first Jingle's precondition applies in redistricting cases? I'm not aware of any current proposals in Congress to do that. And actually, I think this is a critically important point, Justice Kavanaugh, because, of course, this is a statutory interpretation case. This Court has emphasized that stare decisis considerations have their greatest force here. And it's the Voting Rights Act. It's not an area where the Court's decisions have flown under the radar or escaped notice. Congress has not hesitated to step in and alter the statute when it's been dissatisfied with this Court's interpretation. That was the whole point of the 1982 amendments. So I think that's exhibit A of the principle here. And far from disrupting or disturbing the Jingles framework in any way, Congress has repeatedly left Section 2 untouched while it's amended other aspects of the statute. And in the 2006 amendments, the House report specifically noted that Congress did not intend any departure from Jingles or its progeny. So I think that those stare decisis considerations really weigh heavily in the balance here. Thank you. Justice Barrett? Justice Jackson? Thank you, Counsel. Mr. LaCour, rebuttal. Thank you. I've got five quick points. I'll try to get through all of them. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, to your point, uh, it is not a departure 
from Jingles to clarify it. This Court didn't depart from Jingles into Grandy when it recognized the importance of proportionality. You didn't depart from Jingles when you added traditional districting principles to the analysis uh, when the Court started focusing on single-member districts. So we are not asking for Jingles to be overruled or changed in any dramatic way. We just need some clarification. Um, and a couple points about the clear error of the standard of review. Um, when it comes to compactness, that was a legal error um, because they left out important traditional districting principles and, and said that's fine. You only have to account for some of the traditional districting principles, not all of them. Um, it's, it's very easy to satisfy Jingles if you get to play by completely different rules, and Jingles just isn't going to do anything useful if that's the case. Um, when it comes to predominance, that's a legal error, just like in Bethune Hill, just like in ALBC. That's reviewed de novo. Um, now, the main point, I mean, courts can resol- the court can resolve this case by clarifying that race cannot be the non-negotiable principle as part of Section 2 liability. Simulations are not required. We just need to make sure that plaintiffs are coming forward with some sort of evidence that resembles what you would think a race-neutral map drawer would do within the confines of the Equal Protection Clause. Because if you read Section 2 to be inconsistent with Cooper and Bethune-Hill, then our maps are always going to be in court. And we've got a real live example of this with the Louisiana case that's pending um, before this court as well. Back in the 90s, they drew two majority black districts. Twice district courts said that's racial gerrymandering and tossed them out. So then they drew one majority black district. Uh, and now this year, they were, their, their map is again preliminarily enjoined for failure to draw two majority black districts. I, I think it's a perfect example of just how the states are caught in the middle here. Uh, and that's because the plaintiffs don't have a clear test. We, we, maximization is not the test. Proportionality is not the test. Um, some smattering of sentence factors doesn't provide the sort of guidance we need either. That only identifies broad societal discrimination, um, not the sort of discrimination needed to justify race-based map drawing. Um, so if you return to the text, I mean, there really is no better test that ensures equal opportunity and equal openness then a map that looks like what you would expect a neutral map drawer to draw consistent with the Equal Protection Clause. I mean, if, imagine for a second that you are a member of the Georgia legislature and all your guidance on Section 2 and the Equal Protection Clause comes from the district court opinion below. You would be completely in the dark. You know that you can account for traditional district principles, but apparently one of your most important communities of interest down in the Gulf is not a sufficient um, community of interest to justify drawing a neutral map. You know that you've maintained cores of your districts and that the Supreme Court in Abrams even said that's fine as part of the, the Jingles 1 analysis, but the district court said, well, here it's not going to be the case. Uh, so your map is going to end up in court again and again. Um, that, that cannot be the case. We need some sort of guidance from this court. Um, in some and the purpose of the Voting Rights Act is to prevent discrimination and to foster our transformation to a society that is no longer fixated on race. Uh, but plaintiffs would transform that statute into one that requires racial discrimination and districting and carries us further from the goal of a political system in which race no longer matters. Uh, neither the text nor purpose of the Act supports that balkanizing approach, and the Constitution forbids it. If Section 2 is to apply to single-member districts, then only a race-neutral benchmark furthers the VRA's goals of, and its equal openness touchstone. And because Alabama's neutrally drawn plan is equally open to all voters, it complies with Section 2. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, other counsel. The case is submitted.